cloud providers created the ability for developers to easily deploy their applications to servers on remote data centers. In the early days of the cloud, most of the code that a developer wrote for their application could run on any cloud provider, whether it was Amazon or Google or Microsoft. These cloud providers were giving developers the same Linux servers that they could expect from an on-premise deployment. Early cloud applications such as Netflix and Airbnb and Uber took advantage of this cloud infrastructure to quickly scale their businesses. In the process, these companies had to figure out how to manage open-source distributed systems tools, such as Hadoop and Kafka. Cloud servers were easy to create, but orchestrating them together to build distributed systems was still very hard. As the cloud providers matured, they developed higher-level systems that solved many of the painful infrastructure problems. Managed databases, auto-scaling queuing systems, machine learning APIs, hundreds of other tools. Examples included Amazon Kinesis and Google BigQuery. These tools are invaluable because they allow a developer to quickly build applications on top of durable, resilient cloud infrastructure. With all of these managed services, developers are spending less time on infrastructure and more time on business logic. But managed services also lead to a new infrastructure problem. How do you manage resources across multiple clouds? A bucket storage system like Amazon S3 has different APIs than Google Cloud Storage. Google Cloud PubSub has different APIs from Amazon Kinesis. Since different clouds have different APIs, developers have trouble connecting cloud resources together, and it has become difficult to migrate your entire application from one cloud provider to another. Crossplane is an open-source control plane for managing resources across multiple clouds. The goal of Crossplane is to provide a single API service for interfacing with all the parts of your application, regardless of what cloud they are on. Crossplane is a project that was started by Upbound, a company with the goal of making multi-cloud software development easier. Basam Tabara is the CEO of Upbound, and he joins the show to talk about multi-cloud deployments, Kubernetes Federation, and his strategy for building a multi-cloud API. We are running a survey for listeners. Please go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash survey to fill it out. We'd love to get your feedback. And if you want to be entered in to win a piece of Software Engineering Daily swag, you can enter in your email address and fill out that survey to get a free hoodie or t-shirt or something. I also want to mention you can sign up for our newsletter at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash newsletter. And as always, you can find all of our old episodes by downloading the Software Engineering Daily app for iOS or Android. You can check those out. And with that, let's get on with the episode. Basam Tabara, you are the founder and CEO of Upbound. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Glad to be here. Your company, Upbound, is focused on supporting multi-cloud deployments. And the most common reason that people give, at least when I talk to people, for wanting to be multi-cloud is to avoid vendor lock-in. But there are actually plenty of other reasons that an enterprise might want to go multi-cloud. What are some of the reasons to go multi-cloud? 
There's actually a number of reasons, and and lock-in definitely is is one of them. But if you kind of think about, you know, maybe the emotional way of thinking about it, (laughs) there are actually good reasons to be multi-cloud. Now that there are a number of cloud providers, they have differentiated services. And so if you are able to use, you know, their differentiated services, run across them, then there are benefits to that, whether it's, you know, they all go through a different innovation cycle, whether it's using some of the instance types or using some of their AI or ML managed services or other new managed services that they provide. If you're all in on one, you don't get to use the differentiated services of the other cloud provider. There are others too, I'm happy to walk through them, but that one is pretty high on the list. Another one that comes to mind is, you know, some people don't get to decide which cloud providers they get to use. For example, you know, if you're a, a enterprise, a large enterprise company, and you acquire a smaller company, and they're on the other cloud, you've automatically become multi-cloud, or you have an on-premise presence, and you know that people call that hybrid, but sometimes that's also, you know, that is a form of being multi-cloud. So there's lots of reasons that that people become multi-cloud or are interested in becoming multi-cloud besides just the, I don't want to get locked in. So the managed service argument is the one that I see as the best argument for going quote-unquote multi-cloud. But it seems like if you're building your software with as many managed services as possible, which I think in general you should be doing, depending on what your product is, but for many products that are high margin software products or or startups that are just trying to make things work, and if it works, then you have a, a high margin software product, then you should pretty much go with these managed services because you just get more flexibility, you get to move faster, uh, you get guaranteed uptime. But if you're if you're stitching together a system from, let's say, Google BigQuery and Amazon DynamoDB and AWS Lambda, and let's say you're using Microsoft Azure, they have a PubSub product, you're using all these things together, that's not really like your multi-cloud, right? That's not the same as having a multi-cloud Kubernetes setup, for example, or having VMs running on these clouds. It's more like you're just buying, it's almost like you're buying compact disk software from these different companies. Right. In general, I think organizations don't want to run complex platform software. So using managed services makes a ton of sense because then you get to focus on the things that help your business thrive um, and not how to, you know, back up a database or deal with, you know, transaction and consistency and all sorts of other issues that platform software typically runs into. And so using managed managed services is great. What's happening today is that, you know, most managed services are, when you think of managed services, you think of your cloud provider's managed services, whether it's, you know, managed MySQL or managed Postgres SQL or managed Redis or all the things that say your cloud provider offers. And so if you're interested in using a best of breed managed services, there are certainly the ones that your cloud provider offers, but there are also ones that are, are outside of your cloud provider. For example, if you wanted to run Spanner or a variant of Spanner and you're in AWS, there isn't one. And so you might want to look into, say, CockroachDB, or if you wanted to run, you know, they just added, for example, managed Kafka. That didn't exist before, but there were alternatives from the companies that, you know, support these products. And so at some level, being multi-cloud and using multiple managed services doesn't mean that you should be restricted to the the cloud offerings of your cloud provider, but instead you should actually 
use the best of breed managed services available to you that make your business or your application or your workloads work really well. Does that make sense? It does. So if I'm running, let's say, a Ruby on Rails application on AWS servers, so whether it's it's running on a Kubernetes cluster and some Docker containers or it's running on an AWS VM, what is it that makes it easier to integrate with AWS services? Why is there any difference between, if I'm just on these AWS servers, why is there any difference between how I integrate with for example, AWS Kinesis or with Google BigQuery? That's a, a very good point. And so so if you're using any of your cloud providers managed services, so your, your example here of Kinesis or Dynamo or RDS, if you're in Amazon, all of those services are integrated at the API level and at the management console level and actually have features between the different services that that offer a high degree of integration, right? And so, for example, you could, using the same AWS API or the CLI or the management console, you can provision Kinesis, Dynamo, Redis, all the managed services that are available to you, as well as the VMs and Lambda and everything else available to you from Amazon, right? Um, what you can't do is reach out through that same API, which you know is, and obviously behind the API is a control plane, and call a third party's cloud offering. Right? There is no easy way to do that. You could run Amazon, for example, and other cloud providers offer a marketplace, and there you could run third party cloud offerings as VMs mostly. And the only integration you get there is billing integration. You don't get API integration. You don't get management console integration. You don't get this integration across services. So they're essentially, you know, they're the apps in the marketplace or the, the managed services in the marketplace are essentially third class offerings within a cloud provider. So it is very different when you're using a a managed service offered by your cloud provider versus a managed service that is not offered by your cloud provider. So a difference would be if I spin up an instance on AWS, that instance comes with the Amazon CLI, the command line interface, and I can do things from that command line interface, maybe like what, spinning up a Kinesis connection or something, and then but you can't Okay, but I can't, there's no first class access to Google BigQuery from this Amazon instance. There is not. You know, let's, we'll ignore the uh, networking egress cost and network connectivity across clouds for a second. But even if you compare, say, running in Amazon and you wanted to use one of Amazon's managed services, let's take Kafka. Uh, they just announced Kafka, so it's fresh in my mind. If you were to use the version that Amazon provides, you get complete integration into their platform. If you were to use managed service or cloud offering of Kafka that is not offered by Amazon, you get at most billing integration mm. and nothing else. And so, you know, that's that's just the nature of how cloud providers work. So, so the, the interesting part there is that it kind of it becomes a trade off. Should I use, you know, my cloud provider's managed services and get the integration, but potentially only I'm limited by the features that they support or they I'm limited by their innovation cycle on these managed services? Or if it's an open source product, I'm limited by what 
you know, is upstream in that open source product versus use a third party independent cloud offering. And I get very little integration at the API level or at the you know, management console level. And the third option is I get, maybe I should run my own, especially if it's open source. And there, you know, it's no longer a managed service. The enterprise or the organization is running the software themselves. And so those are the three that people kind of follow today. So if you're a startup, like, let's take a a later stage startup, like Thumbtack. So I did a show uh, a year and a half or so ago with Thumbtack, and they are mostly on AWS, mostly using ECS for managing the the containers Amazon's container service to manage their their application, their Node.js, you know, services, uh, maybe some Java services, and they use some AWS services, but they also use Google Cloud PubSub, they use Google BigQuery, they use some other Google services you probably don't know exactly what Thumbtack is doing, but when you see companies like that, where most of their core infrastructure is on AWS, but they are using some Google Cloud managed services, what is their way of connecting to those Google managed services, even though their main application is on AWS? It's very likely just the internet, if they're connecting between clouds right now. There are some companies that offer ways to connect across clouds that are not just through public internet, but the most common one is just through the public internet. And, um, and when, you, when you say through the public internet, what does that mean? Like in contrast to being on a, on a cloud, like all your services um, on the same cloud? Yeah, so, so most most cloud providers distinguish between network traffic that goes in and out of the cloud provider and network traffic that is within a cloud provider. So when you egress out of the cloud provider, you're typically just using the, the backbone of the internet to connect, kind of like how, say, you're on your laptop connecting from a browser to a cloud provider. It's all public traffic at that point. And those are typically taxed. So when you, cloud providers love it when you bring data and network traffic into the cloud provider, but they tax you on any data leaving the mm. cloud provider. What are the other frictions for that kind of customer, the, the kind of startup like a Thumbtack that is that wants to have, you know, multi-cloud capabilities? Well, I mean, the biggest one that we, that we at Upbound think about a lot is the lack of a control plane that spans clouds. If you are all within one cloud provider, then you have a control plane that gives you a uniform API, a consistent API, and a set of managed services that are able that are integrated into it and work well together. The minute you cross or leave or use a managed service outside of that realm, you're back to doing things on your own, whether it's you know tools that help you with provisioning or scripts or homebrewed scripts. And you'll see a lot of people build a lot of those themselves. And there isn't, if you will, an API and a control plane that is letting you, you know, do your work across the cloud providers or even across cloud providers and independent cloud offerings. That doesn't exist. What do you mean by that term control plane? So it's in general, like people use the word control plane. I think it comes from, you know, essentially network switches where they differentiate between traffic that is used to move bits. So a data plane, a plane where data moves. And then a control plane is where control signals 
our move, but not data. So essentially a, a fancy word for saying, you know, a, it's a control channel or control, the ability to control things, but not be in the path of moving data or connectivity or uh, anything like that. So if we take the current model of a startup, like that Thumbtack example, where they've got their compute instances on AWS and they want to use some managed service in Google Cloud, and they have to go across the internet and pay the tax of going across the internet and not have nice integrations built into their CLI, how does that contrast with the ideal world in, in your like if in, in your world, what would be the ideal way that Thumbtack would be interacting with their their own services and the managed services? Well, in our world, we think of, you know, imagine a world where there was an API that enabled you to both provision managed services on Google and in Amazon. So, and that, that API was served by a control plane that was able to provision and manage the full lifecycle of these managed, of these services deploy them, connect them to each other. And that was all possible essentially through uh, an API endpoint that you get to call from your favorite tools, CLI, or even could have a UI in front of it, right? Today, these control planes have a scope of one cloud provider. They don't span cloud providers. Got it. So I know this is what you're you're working on at Upbound, this cross-plane control plane that allows you to access different cloud providers before we we go there, I want to talk a little bit about Kubernetes because we haven't talked much about Kubernetes. Kubernetes came out at a time when more companies were looking at multi-cloud or they were looking at hybrid cloud. They were looking at adding cloud functionality to their on-prem infrastructure. How does Kubernetes fit into when you talk to these companies that are that have been thinking about going hybrid cloud or multi-cloud? How does Kubernetes fit into their strategy? I think, honestly, Kubernetes is probably the closest we've come to having a common and consistent API across cloud providers. We're obviously a big fans of Kubernetes. With a, another project that we started, a Rook project, is all based on Kubernetes and is one of the leading storage orchestrators on Kubernetes. And so, you know, if you think about what Kubernetes offers, it gives you an API that lets you orchestrate the running of containers across a set of machines, nodes. These nodes could be VMs or physical machines. It, it really doesn't matter. But that API to orchestrate the running of these containers and some of the resources they use, specifically volumes, storage volumes, works consistently whether you are running in Amazon or you're running in Google or you're running on Azure or you're running on-premise, on-premises, right? That you have a consistent API that lets you do that. And that is really, really interesting because it's it offers a, a layer of portability across cloud providers and, you know, essentially starts hitting on some of the points we were talking about earlier, right? For why people want to you be multi-cloud. And so what we're what you see with you know with Kubernetes and it's got a ton of momentum around it. With all the momentum, it really only knows how to orchestrate containers and volumes. That it's a really amazing system that does the orchestration of both of those things. 
but people run more than just containers and storage volumes connected to containers in in their in the cloud. They run databases, they run message queues, they do pub sub. They run other forms of workloads besides containers, whether it's serverless or VMs or other things that are running across the cloud cloud providers. And for those, there really hasn't been any you know, attempt at portability across the cloud providers, just like Kubernetes has done for containers and, and volumes. And so you know, what we're seeing in, is that people have adopted Kubernetes primarily because it gives them the ability, both Kubernetes and containers, give them the ability to be you know, a little more portable across their environments. But when they reach out and talk to a database, that promise of portability is, doesn't, doesn't hold. And so what we're seeing is that people are starting to run databases using an operator pattern, like the ability to run software like MySQL or Postgres or others. Rook is a good example of that too, running storage systems directly on top of Kubernetes, which you, know, you can argue, well, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to run your own database on Kubernetes? One of, one of the reasons is that you get a form of portability for databases when you do that, but you're trading off using a, you know, a managed service when you do that. You're back in charge of running and managing your own database and giving your own, yourself an SLA versus using a managed service. Right. So we talked about that in our last show. We did a pretty deep dive into Rook. If I remember, I should have reviewed that show before this one, but if I remember, you can use Rook to, like Rook is like a storage interface, so you can use it to connect to Amazon's Elastic Block Storage or whatever Google's block storage is, right? Like, So it's a common interface between the storage systems of different cloud providers. Yeah, I mean, so Kubernetes will let you today, Kubernetes has a, an abstraction called persistent volume that lets you use whatever block storage or file system storage that the cluster supports. Whether So if you're in Amazon, you're likely using EBS. If you're in Google, using Google Persistent Disk. That abstraction, the persistent volume, is in the core of Kubernetes. What Rook does is it lets you run the server side of this abstraction, the thing that provides storage. It lets you run the storage system itself on Kubernetes. And that's like a file system? Yeah, you can think of it as a file system or a block store, an object store, or there, you know, there are numerous kinds of storage that offer that a persistent volume to Kubernetes, that server side is with Rook can itself run on Kubernetes, right? So that's a, in those scenarios, you're likely not wanting to use EBS, which, or, or Google persistent disk, or you want object storage to run on premise, or you want block storage to run on premise. And so there are numerous scenarios where Rook makes sense in this story. Can you give a few a few of those examples and just maybe just give an outline of, of the Rook project? So the Rook project is is an open source project that you have been working on for a while. This was early in Upbound's history. So I think in I don't know if your roadmap was always to build this multi-cloud control plane, but your your initial project was working on Rook, this storage system for Kubernetes. Maybe give a little bit of background to why you started working on Rook and what Rook does and how that led you to what you're doing now with multi-cloud. Yeah, so so when when we started the Rook project, you know, I think this is November of 2016 is when we uh, open sourced it. What we saw was there was a need for 
reliable storage on Kubernetes, especially in scenarios where you are not using, you're not in a public cloud, right? So, and even there, the story was a, a little weaker back then. And so we we started instead we started the Rook project to essentially bring complex storage systems and run them directly on Kubernetes so that they could run in a more streamlined fashion and they could auto scale and deal with a lot of the the scenarios that you know you expect out of a Kubernetes application or a Kubernetes service. And so a common scenario for Rook is you want to run an object store and so you basically through the Kubernetes API you could uh, and through Rook you could say I need an object store and I, here's the configuration for it. And then suddenly you have something like S3 running on your Kubernetes cluster. So th- those are, now if you're in Amazon, you're likely using their managed service for S- for object storage, S3. Um, if you're on-premise, there isn't one. And so you might as well run something on Kubernetes versus say managing storage systems in the old traditional way on on physical machines or directly in the OS layer. That was the motivation for Rook. What we we learned a lot doing that project. We learned a lot about Kubernetes. We learned a lot, a lot about declarative management. We learned a lot about control planes. And when we started Upbound, the goal was to kind of extend that mission and vision of you know being more building of a more open cloud. And that led to you know the the project that we announced this morning uh, around crossplane. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about federation. So, so working with multiple Kubernetes clusters, and then we we will get to what you're doing with crossplane. But I just want to talk a little bit more generally about Kubernetes first. So, I've talked to some different enterprises that like they're going with Kubernetes. But they might have thousands of engineers, and there's different teams that are working with different Kubernetes clusters in the same organization. So I think this is probably true at most companies that are adopting Kubernetes. They have multiple clusters. What are the pros and cons of multiple Kubernetes clusters? For, for people who are listening who, who, have, who are, they want to familiarize themselves with Kubernetes, but they haven't actually worked with it, they might just think, okay, this is this big distributed system that you that manages all your stuff, but actually you might have multiple Kubernetes instances. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people are managing more than one Kubernetes cluster. There are inherent limits to a single cluster, or people want to use different clusters for different purposes, maybe have a production cluster and a staging cluster, or they scale the clusters differently. They might use one cluster for stateful workloads and another one for stateless workloads. There are numerous reasons that why people kind of put a limit on what runs within a cluster. Multi-tenancy is another one. In in this you know modern age now, it's really easy to create Kubernetes clusters, um, especially if you're using the cloud providers managed services. So you could light up a GKE cluster in a few minutes and you have your own Kubernetes cluster. And so essentially there is more and more reason now to treat Kubernetes clusters like cattle, just as you know, in the past we used to use the expression treat you know, treat your nodes like cattle. I think we're we're getting cattle, to the, not pets. More 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 dispensable. That's right. More dispensable, more fungible. And so so we're getting to the point where you could maybe create a cluster, use it for a short amount of time, and then dispose of it. Whether you have a few clusters or you have hundreds of clusters, 
one of the problems with managing those clusters is, you know, how to get a consistent uh, configuration across them, how to have a common surface area for management across them, and also how to orchestrate work across them, right? So this whole multi-cluster effort is interesting and, and is one that, you know, the, the work in federation, Kubernetes federation has started around both addressing the administration issue of uh, multiple clusters, but also starting to think about how to deploy and manage, you know, containers across clusters, being smart about, you know, region, locality, availability, and other things that, that they consider. That term federation, what is a federated Kubernetes cluster? <laughs> it's essentially when you have multiple layers of clusters. So you have a higher layer that is connected to a set of clusters on the lower layer. And the cluster at the higher layer is able to control the ones at the lower layer. So that's it's a hierarchy of clusters where you have one cluster connected to that acts as the federation control plane connected to multiple clusters that are just standard Kubernetes clusters. Why would you want to federate a Kubernetes cluster or I guess a hierarchy of them? Because you get essentially a single control plane that's able to control multiple. So you could do things like, I'd like to deploy a workload or an application that I want to run across these clusters, maybe run across multiple regions. And so if you're doing that, you either have to do that, you know, essentially one-off, go to every cluster and do that. And if things change, you have to go one-off, change it all. Or you use a federation approach where you have a control plane that is orchestrating work across other clusters, just like a standard Kubernetes cluster orchestrates works across work across machines and nodes. When you talk to engineers who are using Kubernetes at a place like Google or Netflix, are they doing federated clusters? There are some folks that are using federated clusters. I think CERN is a, the one that comes to mind. I think the last KubeCon they talked about using federation and using, they had 250 clusters within CERN. I'm sure there are other cases where People use federation. the 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 project itself has gone through a you know a rewrite, and I think there is definitely more traction on the the second version of federation now. And with federation, what is hard about doing that? About setting up a like if I if I'm at Netflix, I can imagine if I was able to snap my fingers, I'm like the 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 architect at Netflix. I'm the chief architect. I can snap my fingers and and make architectural changes. That does sound pretty appealing, having a single control plane, basically the internal Netflix cloud. They probably have something like that, some kind of control plane internally, but but doing it through a federated Kubernetes cluster sounds like it would make sense. What's hard about setting that up? I mean, I, th- I think some of the things that are hard about that is that just it's a, if you're using federation, Kubernetes federation, there it's still a new project and it, there are you know lots of missing gaps and features, but... There's also, you know, a lot of bootstrapping that you have to do when you get clusters working. And so I'd say it's not necessarily uh, obstacles at this point. It's just more work that has to happen to get to the level of this thing working as uh, in a streamlined fashion that, say, Kubernetes does today at a single cluster level. So the ideal scenario might be that I have my Kubernetes top-level control plane running in whatever cloud or on-premises or whatever. And then I've also got Kubernetes clusters at Google 
I've got uh, I've got a Kubernetes cluster at Amazon. I've got one at Microsoft, and the one that I have on prem or the one that I have in whichever cloud provider I want, this federation point can communicate out to the the Kubernetes instances or the Kubernetes clusters at all those cloud providers. And so that's you know I've then I've got uh, then I've got a multi-cloud scenario. That that's from multi-cluster, yes. Multi-cluster, which could also be multi-cloud. Right. Okay. So that brings us to Upbound. We've explored some of these different challenges of Kubernetes and multi-cloud. We talked a little bit about federation. What are you trying to do with Upbound? We we started Upbound essentially with the belief that there needs to be a more open cloud computing platform. That's our our mission is to essentially help make a more open cloud computing platform available to organizations and to to end users and to the general community around cloud computing. And so that that's our mission, and we're doing a lot of work uh, in the open source community. We think of Rook as the first project that we started in that space. Uh, today we announced Crossplane, which is our second project in that space, and we we think as a essentially a central piece, if you will, for a more open cloud. And going forward, we're you know later, sorry, next year we'll be announcing a bunch of other projects that are also within the same you know vision of a more open cloud computing platform. So crossplane, this control plane for multiple clouds. What's the architecture of crossplane? So crossplane is essentially a control plane that you could connect to multiple clouds. So multiple cloud providers or multiple regions within a cloud provider or even across hybrid boundaries on on premises or across clouds. And once you connect your environments and your clouds to Crossplane, you are essentially, you now have a single API and a control plane that has a a set of controllers that can orchestrate and manage work across these cloud providers. So you're essentially, you know, think of it as similar to how we talked about federation, but the scope is not just Kubernetes clusters and containers. The scope is most of the managed services that are available to you and cloud providers, as well as things like Kubernetes clusters and containers and, and others. So if I'm using Crossplane, is my experience that I have a CLI that can do like what we were talking about earlier, you can spin up a Kinesis connection or <laughs> Kinesis queue. I don't know, even know what to call it. Kinesis channel or, you know, interact with Google Cloud bucket storage. Is it is it a CLI for all those things? Yes. So, so, and I'll talk about how, what we used to implement it without confusing the story, but um, that's right. Think of it as just like every cloud provider has a control plane that offers an API and in front of the API, you could use either CLI or their management consoles or tools or libraries. All of those things sit in front of the API. Crossplane is an API and a control plane that is essentially an overlay on top of other cloud providers. So one way to think about it is it's a cloud of clouds or a control plane on top of other cloud providers. But it offers an API that lets you, like you said, control, provision, manage a set of services that could span cloud providers. They're not limited to just one cloud provider. And it offers a layer of portability 
where possible, across cloud providers. So in Crossplane, if you wanted a MySQL database, you ask for a MySQL database. You don't ask for the given cloud provider's managed service for MySQL. So in AWS, it'll be RDS, or in Google, it's Cloud SQL, or in uh, Azure, it's Azure SQL. Instead, a developer writes their application and uh, you know essentially defines their workload and defines the resources that their workload consumes, including things like MySQL or you know message queues or other things without being tied to the cloud provider. And the cross-plane, along with admin policy, is able to provision the infrastructure based on context, based on policies that are set by the admin, and use the given cloud providers managed services to bind the two. Okay, so if I'm building my application on AWS today, even if I'm in Kubernetes and I'm thinking, oh, I've got portability now, I'm not locked in now, if I use DynamoDB, DynamoDB, I believe, has proprietary APIs. There's no open source. Like, I can't just take that code and uh, and just have it run in an open source product because it's just it's going to run better on you know against DynamoDB and DynamoDB has its own APIs. But if you're using Crossplane and you say, hey, Crossplane, like I want. You say, I want a key value store on this cloud over here. The the APIs will be more open and they what they just translate into Dynamo APIs? No, no. So so that's a very good point. So so there's there's no silver bullet here. If you're using something like if your application has built into it the you know a client library for DynamoDB, then you must use DynamoDB's managed service. You can provision it through crossplane. But on the wire, the data plane, the data path to the actual service is still Dynamo, DynamoDB, right? So there, if you are using proprietary databases and software from a given cloud provider, then you don't get to achieve a high level of portability. You can still use Crossplane to get a universal API and a common way to kind of you know, manage and provision infrastructure across the different cloud providers. But for in this example, you're still using a given cloud provider's proprietary stack, proprietary software. So you're saying if I'm using MySQL, for example, since it's open source. Right. Yeah, contrast that example. It's either open source or has a, a widely adopted wire protocol. So you'll see, for example, that people have normalized on using MySQL or Postgres as a wire protocol for many implementations of databases. So your choices there are, you know, MySQL, Postgres, Aurora, the Vitesse, even CockroachDB has a Postgres, supports the Postgres wire protocol. So you get a, there are different ways of supporting and using databases and still not having to change your application um, when it's consuming different implementations of it. And with the trajectory that we're on, more and more open source software is becoming the default. And so we think that we're moving towards a world where there will be more managed services based on open software or managed services that support open or widely adopted wire protocols. Okay, so the advantage there is I, let's say I'm getting started with my application and I write, I'm using a MySQL backing for my database and then over time, I'm like, oh, actually, my application has such a high volume of data 
that I want to use Vitess. You know, it's totally fine because you've still got the the right APIs. You've still got the same APIs. Or if you would say, oh, I want global consistency and super resiliency. I want CockroachDB. You've got the same protocol. And this is in contrast to to what? So it, on, on AWS today, if I was just going with AWS and I was using Aurora, are there specific APIs that, like specific MySQL, like non-MySQL APIs? No. So you can run an application that just uses a MySQL client library and it would run against Aurora or it would run against MySQL or it would run against Vitesse unchanged, right? And so that's partly the property that we like um, when, or we thought about when we were, you know, designing Crossplane, that the decision to use Aurora or the decision to use Vitesse or the decision to use MySQL should be a late bound runtime level decision, not dev time engineering decision. And so if you build your application, and, and this is this is not new. In fact, if you look at, we were talking about Kubernetes earlier. If you look at Kubernetes, when I build my application, put it in containers, I don't think about where it's going to run. That, that's it's, it's a similar thing. Or if it's using a storage volume, I don't really think about whether it's going to come from EBS or from Google Persistent Disk. We think that there is a similar property that could be done for a wider range of resources and services that people are running in cloud today. And that trend is increasing. We're seeing more and more cloud providers offer managed services of open source software. And we're seeing more and more commercial open source vendors offering cloud offering, you know, having cloud offerings of commercial of open source software and that's becoming the default and so if we move to that world you could argue that what is missing from that is a common way to provision and create this workload portability abstractions so that we could you know essentially create a separation of concern between what developers do and need and require and what administrators decide to use or SREs you decide to use when an application is deployed. And that's part of what Crossplane does. It creates the separation of concern between the two, but enables both of them to come together at runtime or at scheduling time. Okay, so tell me about the prototypical user of Crossplane. When are they setting it up? What, what motivates them? And once they set up Crossplane, what can they do? So, so Crossplane is still early. We just released 0.1 this morning. And... But the way to think about it is that it's essentially a control plane. You have to host it somewhere. Right now, you could bring it up on your laptop or you can bring it up you know, anywhere you want in any of the managed clouds. Once you have a cross plane running, you add your cloud provider credentials. And at this point, an administrator could set some policy for what they want to happen. For example, they could say, if an application requests a MySQL resource, I'd like that to be deployed in Amazon using RDS. And I'd like it to use this disk capacity, this version, this security group, this VPC. They could set all of those policies that are specific to the implementation of the MySQL generic resource. When an application developer wants to run an application that consumes MySQL, they don't deal with any of those details. They just say, I've got an application, let's say it's WordPress, it requires MySQL, I need MySQL version 5.7 or higher, and I want a capacity of 100 gigabytes to start with, 
and they run that configuration on the cross-plane, and the cross-plane is able to provision both the workload and the RDS database to implement it and connect the two, open up firewalls, set up security groups, deal with all the things that are needed to enable to get the workload to run without having to bother the developers or, you know, with implementation details. So is it is it a CLI that uh, translates into whatever commands would be called on the cloud provider that you're asking for? Like, can you help me understand what does the request language look like? Right. So, so Crossplane is built on the declarative management engine of Kubernetes. But don't confuse that with managing containers on directly on nodes. We're using the same engine that Kubernetes uses to create a declarative management model. So it follows a very similar approach in that there are, you know, essentially it's configuration language like with YAML, you define a manifest that contains your configuration. You could use any of the tools, popular tools that people have used on Kubernetes like Helm charts or, you know, other number of libraries and, and tools that people have used in that space to define things like a container workload or uh, other types of workloads and MySQL and others. And you define those and you essentially apply them to the cross-plane. And the cross-plane has a set of controllers and a scheduler that is able to take those declarative definitions from a developer, match them, and, and apply the policy that has been set by an administrator. And then the controllers take it from there. They're able to reach out to the cloud using the public API of the cloud provider and essentially provision infrastructure and manage it and set up connections and open up firewalls and do all the things that are necessary to implement what the developer intended. So it's a declarative language. It's much like the Kubernetes declarative language, but it's not declaring Kubernetes uh, resources. It's declaring cloud resources. And and we we chose that path because we've you know are obviously big believers of the Kubernetes vision, and the Kubernetes team and community has built a very extensible model with a really high degree of modularization. And so instead of going and reinventing machinery, we started with that and got to focus on solving some of the multi-cloud scenarios as opposed to reinventing machinery. So when I write my declarative file, can I instantiate like a BigQuery uh, system and and a Kinesis thing and, and have all of these things be declared in Crossplane? At some point. Right now we support a very limited number of managed services at our first release, our initial release. Plenty more are coming. And if you're, you know, any of the listeners are interested in contributing to this project, it's open source, it's community driven. We'd love to get more people involved around around this project. But yes, absolutely. The way to think about this is that we are going to be adding more and more managed services and also looking at different kinds of workloads. The, eventually, the goal is that we cover a very large uh, percentage of the surface area of the cloud. Is this what people use Terraform for? So Terraform is an interesting project. It enables essentially a DevOps engineer or an admin to be able to provision infrastructure using a declarative model. It doesn't offer a you know workload portability as a value proposition on top of it. So it doesn't have, say, a generic MySQL 
our generic work definition of a workload. And it's, you know, it's a great tool, but it's also designed to run by humans. So a human has to apply configuration, confirm it and do all that stuff. It's not designed as a, say, control plane that has, you know, a bit of an autonomous set of controllers that can make changes between desired state and actual state. So the idea that I'm seeing with Crossplane, if I hear you correctly, is you write a declarative file and it can, in the in the long term, it will be able to provision any of these crazy managed services on AWS or on Google Cloud or on Azure, and it will feel like you're importing npm packages or something. Like some, some it will feel as simple and unified as that, but you'll be provisioning these things that today are a real pain to stitch together. Correct. You're provisioning them. You are. And it's also a place where there are a set of smart controllers that can automate some tasks across them. And it's also a place that essentially these smart controllers could optimize the placement and you know of where these services can go. And as this project grows, you can imagine more and more smarts going into it. But I think you you your NPM analogy is is great. So has anybody done anything like this where they've tried to make these unified or, or these translating? Because you have to, what's annoying about this is you're going to have to write translations between the declarative syntax and every single cloud product that people want to use, or they can write their own. But has anybody done that before? Yeah, I mean, unsurprisingly, I'd say Kubernetes has done that for both nodes, some of the networking pieces and storage volumes. And that's partly why we chose to base this project on the engine of Kubernetes and take a lot of the lessons learned from container orchestration and reapply them to multi-cloud orchestration. But Terraform is another one you brought up. They've, they have a pretty large library of plugins and providers that have done a similar thing. So yes, there's some of this. I don't think anybody's done this at attack this problem across clouds and across managed services from a control a, a control plane standpoint, maybe with the exception of the Federation project that has done something similar, but that only has a scope of Kubernetes clusters. Got it. Okay, well, I think we've covered what you're doing today at Upbound in pretty good detail at this point. What's the roadmap look like? You're at 0.1 with Crossplane today. Where are you going from here? And how long do you think it'll take? Well, it's hard to tell at this point. And we're obviously very excited about this project. And we think it's a central piece to a more open cloud. And so we're, we're going to be investing in it. We're excited that some folks like GitLab and others have endorsed it and want to build on top of it. And we're excited to get more people in the community involved in it so that it can actually accelerate. And as far as Upbound's roadmap, this is one of the projects that we're we're looking at. We hope to come back and talk to you about a few more next year. Okay. Well, that sounds great. Basam, thanks for coming on the show once again, and I hope to see you at KubeCon. Yeah, awesome. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Wow. 